1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the What's today's Tuesday, right? Today's Tuesday already. Anyway, the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today, we'll hear a conversation with Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They're the co-authors of the Wisdom Challenge. Experience the life changing power of Proverbs. Also, a lot of. Uh, stuff coming up. We'll talk about Oregon's new COVID numbers. We'll also talk about the hearings that continue today in the Senate with uh, Secretary of State Blinken. Uh, we'll talk about the Woodward Costa book and some of the uh, early disclosures that uh, people are talking about, that and much, much more. So uh, a lot to talk about today. We'll try to get as much in as we can. Well, Oregon has reported 4,700 new confirmed and presumptive COVID-19 cases. Now, I'm not sure what a presumptive COVID-19 case is, but 32 new deaths, and that surpasses uh, 300,000 cases. There are 32 new COVID-19 related deaths, so raising the state's death toll. Uh, this is in total from the beginning, 3,446, according to the Oregon Health Re- Authority speaking earlier today. The authority reported 4,700 new confirmed and presumptive cases of COVID-19 as of Uh, Early this morning, bringing the uh, state's total to three hundred and one thousand five hundred and four. And that's from the beginning. Now, this notion of a presumptive case is a bit uh, confusing. How many of the um, uh, of the number are presumptive and how many are confirmed cases? We don't have those numbers. Well, the 32 new deaths and the forty seven hundred new cases reported include data reported by counties for the three day period between Friday, September the 10th and Sunday, September the 12th. So this is lagging. A bit today is, of course, the 14th. Well, the number of hospitalizations um, with COVID 19 across Oregon is 1,075, which is 11 fewer than yesterday. Uh, there are 274 COVID 19 patients and in intensive care uh, beds, which is nine fewer than yesterday. There are 62 available adult ICU beds out of 652 total. That's a 10% availability and 316 available adult non ICU beds. Out of uh, 4,264, which is a 7% availability. That means if you are rushed to the hospital or go to the hospital with something unrelated but requires either a bed in ICU or non-ICU, there is... um, Uh, There are a limited number of beds available. Well, the total number of patients in hospital beds may fluctuate between uh, report times. The numbers don't reflect admissions per day, nor the length of hospital stays. Staffing limitations aren't uh, captured in this data and um, uh, may reflect uh, some differences as well. Well, today, the Oregon Health Authority reported uh, that 4,699 new doses of COVID-19 vaccinations were added, to the state's immunization registry, again, that's as of September 12th, of uh, the total administered, um, I'm looking for the percentage here, uh, second doses uh, were also um, noted here as were third doses, although my understanding is the uh, the booster, as they're being called, is not yet authorized. So, again, these are the numbers that Oregon published uh, today as to what's happening with covid Affirmed cases and those that are presumed cases. And again, no clarification on that, but could be somewhat misleading. In other news, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken addressed lawmakers. In a second day of questioning about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan as he faces the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, that's one day after appearing before members of the House. Like he did before the House committee on Monday, he prepared opening remarks. He blamed the failures and troubles in Afghanistan on others. He touted the efforts of the Biden administration to do what it could. He blamed the Trump administration for making a deal with the Taliban that allowed them to gain strength and be in a position to take over the country. He said that while the Trump deal kept Taliban forces from attacking U.S. forces, their allies, and major Afghan cities. The Taliban continued its uh, relentless march on remote outposts, checkpoints, villages, and districts, as well as the major roads connecting the cities. Now, one of the things the Trump uh, deal had was if the uh, Taliban didn't keep its end of the bargain, the bargain was off. Uh, He went on to say that by January of 2021, the Taliban was in its strongest military position since 9-11, and we had the smallest number of troops on the ground since 2001. Well, in discussing the evacuations of Americans from Afghanistan, the secretary of state said that the administration began telling them to leave in March, sending 19 different messages, including offers to help pay for airfare. Despite this effort, he went on to say, at the time of the evacuation and by the time it began, there were still thousands of Americans in country, almost all of whom were evacuated by the 31st of August. Many were dual citizens living in Afghanistan for years, decades, generations, deciding whether or not to leave the place they know as home is a wrenching decision. Like President Biden did after the Afghanistan country fell to the Taliban, Blinken blamed the Afghan government and the military for the situation on the ground. He said that August's urgent need for evacuation was um, uh, sparked by the collapse of the Afghan security forces and the government, which the administration had not foreseen. Throughout the year, he went on to say we were constantly assessing their staying power, considering multiple scenarios. Even the most pessimistic assessments did not predict the government forces in Kabul would collapse while U.S. forces remained, which it seems would be something of a shortcoming, uh, given what had uh, been said about uh, about them without U.S. uh, air um, cover uh, by others uh, before this event. So day two, this time before the Senate. Well, President Biden's administration assessed thousands of lawful permanent residents of the United States uh, remain in Afghanistan following the tumultuous evacuation of Kabul, according to the secretary of state. I think the best estimates are that there's several thousand green card holders in Afghanistan. He's speaking to the House Foreign Affairs Committee on Monday. Well, that figure hints at the scale of the diplomatic and humanitarian challenge confronting the State Department officials in the absence of U.S. military personnel on the ground. Blinken Blinken's team rather is developing new plans for securing the departure of the remaining American citizens, green card holders and Afghan allies expected to face retaliation and already facing retaliation from the Taliban for the past uh, their past work with the U.S. government. But the number of Afghans eligible for special immigrant visas remains unclear. Those are numbers that we are working on right now as people come out of Afghanistan. Some of them in the United States already; others at these transit points. We're collecting all of that information. Blinken testified. Well, the days since the end of the U.S.-led evacuation have been marked by confusion and anxiety for Americans and Afghans still in the country. Taliban officials allowed um, uh, guitar. Um, Airways to begin flying charter flights out of Kabul's International lat, uh, Airport rather, last week. But that operation was put on hold on Friday and will remain paused for at least seven additional days. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show coming up later this hour. We'll hear from Dan Britton and Ron Forseth, authors of The Wisdom Challenge. We'll be back
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast It is aired on ninety three point nine kpdq
2: we're back you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show well, on the day that the Biden administration pledged sixty four million dollars in humanitarian assistance for Afghanistan, which they have relied on over the years, a skeptical Republican lawmakers asked the Secretary of State if the money could end up in the hands of Taliban terrorists. Is it the policy of the United States of America to take hard-earned tax dollars and pay terrorist organizations? Well, that's a quote from Representative Scott Perry asking the Secretary of State during a House Foreign Affairs Committee hearing on the Afghanistan withdrawal. It is not, said Blinken. It is not, repeated Perry. So your testimony earlier was, is that we're sending taxpayer dollars right now to Afghanistan for humanitarian relief. Who are we sending that to? Well, the Secretary of State said the funds would go to non-governmental organizations, NGOs, and United Nations agencies working on the ground, not to the Afghan government. We'll ask how the administration would ensure that the money did not reach the Taliban regime. The secretary said, as we do around the world in places of conflict, where we provide humanitarian assistance working through U.N., working through NGOs with long tested methods to make sure that the assistance goes to the people who need it. Uh, you've announced today with great fanfare and great pride that you are providing 64 million in humanitarian assistance to the people of Afghanistan, noted um, Representative Greg Stube, again a, a, Florida Republican. You can't even get our people out of the country, he told Blinken. But we and the American people are to believe that $64 million, uh, $64 of our tax dollars to be sent to Afghanistan won't fall into the hands of the Taliban or other terrorist organization. Well, the announcement of the new aid came in a statement from U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield delivered remotely to a high-level ministerial convened by U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres in Geneva on the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan following the Taliban takeover. Now, it is a legitimate question, and it's certainly an area we might consider praying about, that the people who actually need uh, those funds, will that assistance will receive it, um, while at the same time recognizing that the Taliban, who has complete and total control in the country, Uh, could wrest it from whoever is making that distribution at any time. Al-Qaeda could rebuild in Afghanistan and again become a threat to the U.S. homeland in one to two years. That's according to top intelligence officials. um, Uh, Saying in Afghanistan, this could be the future. The current assessment, probably conservatively, is one or two years for for Al Qaeda to build some capability to at least threaten the homeland. That's a quote from the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, Lieutenant General Scott Barrier. Uh, During Tuesday's National Security Summit, officials say that number of the terrorist group have already started to return to the country with the Taliban takeover, speeding the timeline for which the group could begin to pose a renewed threat. And while both al-Qaeda and ISIS-K have a presence in Afghanistan, only al-Qaeda has an established alliance with the Taliban. It's still unclear how much effort the Taliban will put into keeping the terrorist group in check, though they pledged during the peace agreement with the U.S., Do not allow the country to become a haven for terrorist groups. Now, Again, given the current situation, I'm not sure how we're to take that. A pledge some officials don't trust the Taliban to keep now that U.S. forces have departed the country. Deputy Director of the CIA, David Cohen, he said the agency is watching some potential movement of Al Qaeda to Afghanistan, but noted it's hard for the CIA to assess a timeline for when they or ISIS K would have the capability to go to strike the homeland before the agency could detect the threat. Again, we have no presence in the country. Without a ground presence in in the country the official uh, will be looking to develop over the horizon methods of collecting intelligence Now that's uh, from a distance from a neighboring country and so on there were questions posed as to whether or not uh, vladimir putin threatened the u.s president to establish intelligence uh, means uh, outside of the country and we haven't gotten an answer to that yet let's hope that that uh, is not the case but Um, We again, uh, the secretary of state and others have refused to give a straight answer to questions posed on that uh, that issue. A barrier stressed that any over the horizon intelligence ability in Afghanistan will have to be developed alongside a new push to monitor rivals such as Russia and China. Well, during the final months of former President Donald Trump's term, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, Made two phone calls to Chinese officials in fear that Trump would create conflict with the communist nation. A new book has claimed. Well, in the book, authored by Washington Post associate editor Bob Woodward and national political reporter Robert, um, Costa, it is alleged that Milley made two secret phone calls, both to his Chinese counterpart, General Lee uh, Zhao Cheng of the uh, People's Liberation Army. The book alleges that the phone calls took place prior to the 2020 presidential election on the 30th of October last year and two days after the January 6th Capitol riot on the 8th of January 2021. According to the book, Millie contacted Zhao Cheng uh, after he had reviewed intelligence that suggested Chinese officials believed the United States was planning an attack on China amid military exercises in the South China Sea. General Lee, I want to assure you that the American government is stable and everything is going to be okay. Milley told him during the first call. The book said we are not going to attack or conduct any kinetic operations against you. Well, the book excerpted uh, in The Washington Post also stated that Milley told uh, Zhao Cheng that he would warn him in advance should America decide to attack. Now, this is unprecedented. General Lee, you and I have known each other over uh, for five years now. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time, Milley added, as reported by the book. Uh, the book is titled Peril, which is set to be released next week. It's not going to be a surprise, he went on to tell the Chinese uh, general. Well, the authors of the book also claim that Milley contacted Zhao Cheng a second time to reassure him that the U.S. would not make any type of advances or attack China in any form, as Millie promised. We are 100% steady. Everything's fine, but democracy can be sloppy sometimes. "End quote." Well, those phone calls, according to the book, were never mentioned to Trump, as Millie, who was the president at the time, as Millie believed his mental state had declined following the election. Something about which he shared his thoughts in a phone call with White, uh, with House Speaker rather, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, on the 8th of January, the same day he called Zhao Ching the second time. According to Pelosi, she spoke with Milley that day about available precautions to prevent Trump from engaging in military action. The book also alleges that Milley made a phone call to the admiral in charge of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command and suggested postponing any additional military exercises. The book also noted that Milley requested senior officers swear an oath that his... Um, involvement be necessary should uh, trump give an order to launch nuclear weapons during his final days in office now this is quite extraordinary there are lots of questions of course about uh, uh, trump's fitness if those were legitimate concerns about Milley's authority and whether or not he usurped the lines that should have been crossed they also make statements about the vice president at the time and whether or not it was noble on his part uh, to decline to do what to president trump had asked him to do with uh, following the elections and there's some questions being raised about whether or not this was a noble act or that he had exhausted other options um anyway the book is uh, set to be released next week and um whether or not these things can be verified whether or not there are off the record um uh People who contributed to the book or if they are identified so that things can be followed up on remains to be seen. But I guarantee it will be a bombshell and uh, will hit the ground running. Well, today is the recall in California. Uh, the effort to remove Governor Gavin Newsom, it was a long shot from the very beginning. Republicans outnumber Demo- or I should say Democrats outnumber Republicans rather dramatically. But there's also a large contingent of individuals who uh, do not identify with either political party. It's, a, again, a long shot. In a highly Democrat state, well, California Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, is facing the special election today that could make him just the third state governor in U.S. history to be removed from office through a recall. Again, it's unlikely given the numbers and the makeup there, although the recall could not have moved forward unless sufficient numbers of Democrats also um, uh, signed the petition requiring a significant number of Californians. The recall effort grew into a threat to Newsom during the coronavirus pandemic, and recent polls and a shift in uh, betting markets show that Newsom is increasingly likely to keep his seat. His job is on the line much sooner than he had hoped, but it's not likely he will be overturned. We'll talk more about that later in the program, but today is the day, and the expectation is by 8 o'clock p.m., Pacific time, uh, they'll have a pretty clear picture of whether or not that effort will succeed. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we'll hear from Dan Britton and Ron Forsyth. They are co-authors of The Wisdom Challenge, Experience Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. We'll be back. You're
1: listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. Our culture prioritizes wealth and fame, but undervalues the pursuit of wisdom. When we possess and apply wisdom, however... That's the only way we can achieve so much more for God and for ourselves and others. But we also yield greater impact. Well, Solomon was one of the greatest men in the Bible. He was the son of King David, who took the throne at 19 years old and ruled until he died at age 59. God offered Solomon whatever he wanted, and rather than choosing wealth, fame, or possessions, all of which he gained at some point, Solomon asked for wisdom which we find in the book of Proverbs. Well, in the Wisdom Challenge experience the life-changing power of Proverbs. My two next guests, authors Dan Britton and Ron Forseth, share simple effective strategy for pursuing wisdom. And passing it on. Well, Dan Britton serves as the chief field officer with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, an organization I love, was a member of as a college athlete, where he's been on staff since 1990. He has co-authored six books. Ron Forseth is a business strategist, mentor, and uh, ultra-distance walker. He has uh, lived in many cities and countries, including Mexico, China, Hong Kong, and uh, Mongolia. He is the founding executive editor of churchleaders.com and longtime Uh, General Manager of SermonCentral.com, the world's largest online community of pastors. Gentlemen, it is a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us, Georgine. Uh, You know, wisdom is something that's considered somewhat arcane by many in our culture today. Can we begin by just defining uh, by defining rather what wisdom is? We live in an information age and we might assume that because we can consult our phone, the Oracle of Delphi, (laughs) and get answers to virtually any question that we are men and wisdom uh, and women who possess great wisdom. What is wisdom in the information age?
3: Uh, you know, I think there's probably over a million di- different definitions of wisdom. But obviously, as you come to God's Word, uh, God's wisdom is different than the world's wisdom, man's wisdom. I love Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite uh, Bible teachers. Yes. Chuck Swindoll says, is, wisdom is seeing things the way God sees things. And when we have the filter and the ability to put everything through the God's eyes, God's heart, God's understanding— That, I believe, is wisdom. Ron has a different definition. He likes the wisdom.
4: Ron? Georgine, I like to define wisdom simply as unity with God. When we've got unity with him, we've got his mind, we've got wisdom. And when we've got disunity with him, we fall into foolishness. So unity with God is how I define wisdom.
2: Great definitions of wisdom, uh, which we generally as a culture Lack, But the pursuit of wisdom is something that we are encouraged to do. Now, um, you write about uh, Solomon, and he, I should say, he writes in uh, the Proverbs uh, significant wisdom. He asked for it early on in his life, and yet he was not a perfect man himself. How would you sum up the life of Solomon as uh, reflected in his prayer for wisdom early on and then the life that followed?
3: I think the life of uh, uh, Solomon is a great uh, case study, right? You know, we, we, we see a guy that literally could have had anything from God, you know, in his dream. God asked him, what, what do you ask for? He literally said wisdom, then all the other things got given to him. But yet after that, he struggled, you know, to put that into action. And so, you know, one of the things that Ron and I believe is that you can have all the wisdom at your fingertips, You have all the information, godly information that you desire at your fingertips. But unless you put it into action, it is nothing. So one of the things, Georgine, we we say in the book is is we say wisdom minus relationships equals nothing. So wisdom plus relationships equals impact and influence. And so I think where Solomon struggled was he might have been the wisest man in the world. He just didn't take that wisdom and infuse it into relationships. That's where it kind of got sideways. The people he led, the people that he married, it just got sideways.
2: And I believe God's wisdom always has to be in the context of relationships. Can you explain the importance of the three wisdom challenge elements? And we're talking about your book, The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. What are the three uh, wisdom challenge elements? Sure. Well,
4: it says in Proverbs twice. It says that wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire compares with her. And so we have to start with the decision that we will pursue wisdom. It's so valuable, but we must pursue it. So, pursue is the first element. The second element, as Dan says, he who walks with the wise becomes wise. We have to partner with others as we go through Proverbs. And then It's not something to keep to ourselves. We want to pass it on to others. So when we get done with the wisdom challenge, the next step is to do the wisdom challenge with somebody else and to challenge them to do it with somebody else. So pursue, partner, and pass it on are the three elements of the wisdom challenge.
2: Why does God put such great value on wisdom? Well, you know, it's interesting, Georgine,
3: that twice, as Ron has referenced to to it in Proverbs, it says there's nothing more valuable than wisdom. We, We like to call that... The nothing promise like it's there's nothing that can top it it's it's a trump card and so we believe that 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 wisdom challenge that wisdom promise that God gives us that if we seek after wisdom if we ask God as it says in James that hey if you lack wisdom ask of God and what does he say Georgine? he says hmm. he will give it to you not just a little bit but he'll give it to you generously And so we believe as you press in and you pursue wisdom, you partner with them, you pass the wisdom on, that God will actually give you double blessing in the wisdom. And really, that's where it started, Georgina, in 2012 when Ron called me and as a friend for many years said, hey, I want to go through the Book of Proverbs together. And that's how the Wisdom Challenge began back in 2012. Oh, That's
2: that's so incredible. And I just want to pause for a moment and consider what that scripture says. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. You think about that. We go to Google all the time when we're trying to find something out. The God of the universe has invited us into his presence to admit, you know, Lord, I, I lack wisdom. We can ask him, and he promises that he will answer that request. In the same way that he asked Solomon what he wanted, he's given us an invitation to ask him to give us wisdom. That is an incredible invitation, and I wonder how many of us, or rather how few of us, take advantage of that amazing invitation. i tell you, it's that decision to
4: receive God's gift of wisdom that changes everything. Yes. Uh, if you If you go back and you look at the, the life of Solomon when he did receive it uh, he, he received uh, he received riches, he received dominion, he received knowledge, he was a botanist, he was a biologist the queen of Sheba came to him and and the, there was not one single question she asked that he could not answer because God gave him, him wisdom so it's it 's this gem that uh we are we 're wise to pursue wisdom and we 're fools to neglect it.
2: Yeah, and we have the advantage yeah. of the completed scriptures. We also have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are essentially without excuse.
3: Yes, amen to that. You know, Georgine, uh, you know, it's interesting even to follow up on that is about what we ask for, right? Like, what do we as humans desire to have in our lives? It, it, sometimes wisdom isn't something that comes to the top of our minds. You know, it was interesting, uh, several years ago, a survey asked 700 different people, we we documented in our book, they said, if you could say in one word what you would want more in life, what would that be? So they they recorded the top 10 answers, and, you know, you get happiness, number one, money, freedom, peace, joy, balance, fulfillment, confidence, stability, and passion. Which That list, Georgine, is a great list of great things that anybody would want to have, even as followers of Christ, what we want to have. But you know what's lacking? The glaring thing that's not in the top ten list is wisdom. What they didn't say is wisdom. And so I believe the very basic thing that we're talking about, 31 chapters, the book book of Proverbs, Solomon's writings, is this very
2: thing called wisdom. Yeah. Once again, we're talking about the book, The Wisdom Challenge: Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. The book fits easily in your hand. It's beautifully uh, bound in leather-like material and is designed uh, as a um, as a devotional. Describe for our listeners. Uh, how the book is laid out. Well, actually, I need to take a break. When we come back, I'll ask you to uh, to describe how the book is laid out and how you see it best being um, uh, put to use. Again, my guests are Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They're the co-authors of The Wisdom Challenge, Experiencing the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with co-authors Dan Britton and Ron Forseth. They co-authored The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. Dan Britton serves as the Chief Field Officer with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, where he's been on staff uh, staff rather, since the 90s. Ron Forseth is a business strategist, mentor, ultra-distance walker. And I have to ask you what that is in just a moment, because I've walked a couple of marathons, but ultra-distance, I think, is something beyond that. He's the founding executive editor of churchleaders.com and longtime general manager of Um, sermoncentral.com. So we're just delighted to have both of you with us. Now, before I ask the other question, Ron, ultra-distance walker, what does that mean?
4: Well, you probably have seen the movie Forrest Gump, and he just gets going and keeps going, and that's what I like to do. I like to walk walk long, long distances. I will say this. If you've completed a marathon, you're a tougher person than I am, but uh, (laughs) I like to— you know, walk, I've walked uh, from Monterey Bay to Morro Bay along the Big Sur coast. I've walked from uh, the Kansas border, uh, 186 miles to the top of Pikes Peak. I just like to, to walk and, and spend time with God and I, uh, I'm, I'm trying to make my way now from Pikes Peak over to the four corners across all of Colorado. That's a, a few examples of the ultra walking that I like to do.
2: Wow, that's that's incredible. And as I mentioned, uh, Dan is serves with the Fellowship of uh, Christian Athletes. It's an organization that really helped keep me grounded when I was an athlete at the University of Oregon. So I just love what FCA uh, does all across the uh, all across the country.
3: Yeah, you know, Georgine, it's been amazing in the thirty years I've been serving with FCA. You know, when I first started out. We were U.S. bordered and and just basically focused on four percent of the world's population. So back fact, in 2013, God kind of led our leadership team to say, hey, you know, there's 96% of the world's population outside the U.S., and there's over 200 countries outside the U.S., and maybe God might be leading us to become a international ministry. And so in 2013, we took that bold step of faith, Georgine, and wouldn't you know that now we're in 106 countries outside the U.S., wow. that God has raised up incredible ministry around the world. I'm heading uh, to Pakistan. On Wednesday, just got back from Dubai
2: and Egypt. It, God is doing amazing things outside our, our country. Oh, that is amazing and so good to hear. Thank you. Well, just before the break, I was asking uh, one or both of you to describe how the Wisdom Challenge uh, is structured. How you see uh, readers using this as a devotional, as a you know one sit down and read from cover to cover. Uh, describe for our listeners who don't have this volume in their hands um, how it's designed. you want to read that? You want me to? No, Ron. Go. You're the guy to
3: challenge yeah, me. Right. I I, I yep. got the call from you, and and you said, "Hey, let's get through Proverbs together." And I'll say,
4: "Well, let's go." <laughs> uh, okay, so so Georgine, we've already talked about wisdom's impact and and how it happens in the context of relationship. That's chapter one. Mm-hmm. Uh, chapter two is wisdom's promise, uh, more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Then you've got wisdom's invitation, and, and we've got this image in Proverbs repeatedly. Where wisdom stands on the the top of the wall at the gates of the city and shouts, "Come to me and and receive wisdom for yourself." And and it's it's like, uh, and if you don't, you're crazy, you know. Uh, and then and then you've got uh, wisdom's gift and, and you know, chapter uh, four. And then what's very interesting is in chapter five, um, we talk about wisdom's tree, and we each have the ability to grow. Not just a, a tree, but a forest of trees of people growing in wisdom, and and uh, the math of that's astounding. Because uh, what happens you do it with 12 people, and those 12 people do it with 12 people, it, it, it multiplies and spreads. So that's wisdom's tree. And then there's the legacy that we leave as a result of acquiring wisdom, and the legacy we live we leave with our families and with those that are. Uh, in our lives, and then finally, uh, we talk about wisdom's journey, and it's it, it takes us through the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter by chapter, with another person, and that's the devotional element where we we experience it with another, not just once, but over and over again. Like Billy Graham, who actually went through the book of Proverbs every day for more than seventy years. That's more mm. than eight hundred and forty times through the book of Proverbs. You've got. Uh, 915 verses in the book you've got 15,000 words and if you had just five insights um, coming out of each one of those words you have 75,000 insights that's enough for a new insight every day for hundreds of years it's just packed so, uh, but that's how the book's laid out
2: well, and the, the amazing thing is you can start if you're a new believer and you're 12 or if you've been walking with the Lord for a period of time and you're in your 70s. This is a volume because it focuses on the wibs, uh, the wisdom found in Proverbs that can benefit any reader. Now, I especially appreciate it at the back of the book. As you pointed out, um, there's a, a, a call to go through the book of Proverbs verse by verse that you have in the book. Uh, a line segment where my verse, my insight, where people can record the wisdom that they're picking up from God's word uh, as recorded in the Proverbs.
3: Yeah, it's it's, it's really like a field manual. We, we designed mm-hmm. it to be like, hey, I, I buy a book, share it with someone else. I invite them to be my Proverbs partner for the month. And actually, I just mailed out a copy today to a friend in New York that I'm going to be entering into the Wisdom Challenge next month. I can't wait. I'm just finishing up with a friend here in Kansas City that I've known for 30 years. It's been an amazing experience, and Calvin and I have reconnected recently and I've given us a chance to be in God's Word, and he's already identified three guys he's going to share it with next month. So my friend in New York, I just mailed out today a copy of the Wisdom Challenge to him so he can be able to begin to go through it. But but basically, Georgine, I mean, the power is the power of wit, Right. You know, mm-hmm. with, before Ron called me and said, Hey, I want to invite you into this challenge, I had read a proverb a day for many years. I mean, year after year after year, I just incorporated it as part of my devotions. One part of my devotion is spend five, six minutes, read the proverb of the day, 31 chapters, 31 days, easy to remember. But when he said, Hey, I want to do it with you, that changed everything. It's like the proverb that says, iron sharpening iron, right? Mm-hmm. And so. It was a double blessing as Ron and I began to go through Proverbs together, and I read a chapter, he read a chapter on his own, I was texting him what God showed me, he was texting me what God showed to him, I was learning from him, he was challenged by what I was saying. We are both benefiting kind of this double blessing from God, and I believe Proverbs is meant to do with others, not just by yourself. And so
2: that was the big breakthrough. Oh, that's just amazing. You know, I've never gone through the Proverbs with someone else. I, um, I'm a primary caregiver for my mother who lives with my husband and me. She's 90 years old, and her vision is such that she's no longer able to read God's Word on her own. And I'm thinking, uh, you just give me the thought, I'm thinking maybe we'll take the wisdom challenge and go verse by verse uh, in our devotional together and just um, do, do that together. And I think it's going to be a wonderful time, certainly a fellowship. It's in God's word and pursuing wisdom because that's a lifelong uh, pursuit. Um, this is a beautiful little book that I think that she and I can really benefit by. So thank you for that, uh, that uh, suggestion.
3: Yeah, I'm smiling ear to ear, Georgine, just thinking about the month of July, how you and your mom are going to be able
2: to connect in God's word through this wisdom challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Ron, did you want to weigh in as well?
4: Well, I I just want to say I'm confident God's going to show up and give you guys a gem every single day, and then you can share those gems with each other. So that's that's thirty-one times two. That's sixty-two gems coming your way, and, and I'm I'm really excited for you guys to experience that together. What a great yeah, idea! I, I'm
2: excited too. We've both read the proverbs. You know, we're familiar with you know some of the verses, but to sit down and do that together, I think it will be much more memorable, and I think it will penetrate our hearts more deeply because we're doing that, as you've pointed out, um, in relationship. Now, where can our listeners learn more about the Wisdom Challenge?
3: Easy, WisdomChallenge.com. Wisdomchallenge.com, it, we have a great website that we created with resources, videos. Uh, even as Ron said earlier about the Wisdom Tree, you can actually go in and start your own tree and begin to, to have people that you did the Wisdom Challenge with to be able to know the impact, the legacy that you're having, the wisdom legacy that you're having. So uh, WisdomChallenge.com is the place to go to or you can pick up our book on any of the outlets like Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other places.
2: Excellent. I'm already thinking my mom might want to do this with some of her grandchildren and then her great-grandchildren. We can develop a wisdom tree that will give her um, an outlet for ministry within our our small little family. Gentlemen, such a delight to talk with you today, and I appreciate uh, the book that you have written, The Wisdom Challenge Experience, The Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. And I thank you so much for the time that you've taken to talk with us here today about it. Thank you. It's
4: been very special. Thank you so much, Georgine. Excited about you and your, your mom and her, her
2: kids and grandkids and great grandkids going through <laughs> it. That's great. Thank you so much. God bless.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. We're continuing to take a look at some of the top news stories of the day, including the fact that today is California's recall election. They tell us, and that's to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. They tell us we should have a pretty clear picture of the outcome by 8 o'clock p.m. Pacific time, so we'll see. But Gavin Newsom's job is on the line much sooner than he had hoped. The California Democrat is facing this special election. It could make him just the third state governor in U.S. history to be Removed from office through a recall. Now, let me just say it's highly unlikely, but you know anything is possible. It's an election. Well, Democrats have held a reliably tight grip on California's statewide political leadership, but despite Republican voters being outnumbered nearly two to one in the state, the recall effort hasn't uh, only qualified for the ballot but grown into a legitimate threat to Newsom, thanks in no small part to the coronavirus pandemic. Well, how did the election work? All registered California voters are eligible to participate in this special election. Mail-in ballots uh, were sent out um, to all active registered voters. The ballots had two parts. The first simply asks whether Newsom should be removed as governor. If more than 50 percent say yes, it's the um, end of the road for Newsom. The second part of the ballot actually asks which candidate, and there are upwards of 40 of them, uh, should succeed Newsom. If the governor is recalled, the replacement candidate who receives the most votes will be elected to the remainder of Newsom's term, which ends in January of 2023. Voters will fill out just one part of the ballot if they want. They can also select a replacement candidate even if they vote against recalling Newsom. Well, opponents of Newsom gathered uh, the nearly 1.5 million signatures that were required to trigger this recall election, and that threshold equaled 12 percent of the votes cast in the previous gubernatorial election. That was back in 2018. Well, the petition had been approved in June of last year, and its backers were originally given a deadline of November 17th of last year to collect the signatures. But they received a fourth, mo- a four-month extension, Again, the pandemic impact on their efforts. Well, that additional time proved rather pivotal. Signatures began pouring in in late 2020 after photos emerged of Newsom dining mask free with lobbyists at the vaunted and extravagantly expensive restaurant, the French Laundry. At the time, the governor and the state government were advising Californians to mask up and to follow social distancing rules as COVID cases began to surge. But we've all seen that there are exceptions to those rules that are applied to those who make the rules. Well, Newsom apologized for attending the dinner. He said he made a bad mistake. He acknowledged that the spirit of what I'm preaching all of time was contradicted. But the backlash refocused the recall election on COVID, even though the pandemic wasn't mentioned in the original petition. If references it um, references uh, homelessness. Uh, it references high taxes and other issues that conservatives have long included among their grief, their chief criticisms rather of California. The petition was brought in February of last year by Oren Heedle, a retired sheriff's sergeant. He was the sixth attempt to recall Newsom, who was inaugurated in 2019. So this has been um Uh, ongoing 46 challengers ran to unseat Newsom like the 20 uh, rather 2003 recall that made Arnold Schwarzenegger the state's governor this year's election has put a wide variety of personalities on display Larry Elder a supporter of the former president Donald Trump has reportedly raised more than 13 million dollars dwarfing most of his recall rivals while still trailing far behind the tens of millions raised by opponents of Newsom's removal Other Republican candidates include John Cox, who has traveled to campaign events uh, with a live Kodiak bear in tow okay Caitlyn Jenner the former Olympic athlete and male and reality TV personality among the nine Democrats are Hollywood actor Patrick Kilpatrick and YouTube millionaire Kevin I think it's Pafrath, as well as a college student a free speech lawyer and a cannabis policy advisor who's asking Californians to vote against recalling Newsom well two members of the Green Party one libertarian member and ten unaffiliated candidates are also on the ballot so lots to choose from in California who's expected to When? Well, that question will be answered later this evening. Um, For the most uh, most part, it is believed that the governor will retain his seat, uh, primarily because he's had a significant um, fundraising effort. He's had the president, the vice president speak on his behalf, and they have invoked Donald Trump as if his name were on the ballot. We'll just have to wait and see what actually happens, but all of that will be uh, uh, decided later this evening in the state of California. Again, numerically, it seems that Gavin Newsom uh, will probably retain his seat, but only time and counting the ballots will actually tell. Well, the White House abruptly cut the feed of President Biden mid-sentence as he asked a question at the wildfires briefing. Was it inadvertent? Was it deliberate? Well, the White House abruptly cut the feed of the president's briefing on wildfires with federal and state officials. During Monday's visit to Boise, Idaho, uh, the president was receiving a briefing about the ongoing wildfires that have plagued several Western states, including uh, California, Oregon, As well, while the president spoke for much of the briefing, at one point, he said he wanted to hear more from George Geisler of the National Association of State Foresters. Can I ask you a question? He asked, of course, Geisler responded. Well, one of the things that I've been working on with some others is Biden said before being cut off mid sentence. Now, was this a technical glitch? Was it deliberate? Now, in this highly charged political environment, of course, the skeptics would always look to huh? this was a deliberate effort to silence the president. Uh, The White House didn't immediately respond to requests for comment, which only feeds the idea, but we don't know at this point. Well, the president blames the Idaho wildfires on global warning. He also repeatedly implied that he's not in charge of when or where he can take questions from the press which has raised some questions and I think led to speculation about his uh, feed being cut off earlier in the week. Uh, McEnany blasted the White House leadership, claiming we have naive neophytes running the country. And The New York Times is being accused of catering to the Bidens after calling the Hunter Biden story unsubstantiated. It has since been substantiated. Joe Biden's checkered history of race relations is being exposed in a new book. We'll talk more about that at some point in the future. Well, AOC wore a tax the rich dress at the thirty five thousand dollar per ticket Met Gala. Now, she says she didn't pay for the ticket or the the dress. But of course, those who did will just have a tax write off. Well, the representative from New York wore a white dress with a slogan tax the rich at the lavish Met Gala in New York, where tickets go for thirty five thousand dollars each. The wardrobe cho- uh, choice drew a mixed response on social media, with some praising the representative's message and others questioning whether it conflicted with the star-studded nature of the event. Tickets to the gala, as I mentioned, cost at least $35,000, according to the Associated Press. Ocasio-Cortez's office didn't uh, respond to a request for comment on whether or not she paid for it all. But since then, uh, it's been said that she did not pay for either the dress or the ticket. She posed uh, mask lists as she arrived, but attendees had to be vaccinated and were expected to wear masks once inside. Attendants uh, who were paid staff serving these uh Elitists uh, were required to wear masks and they weren't pictured in uh, photos, but they were standing um, next to or close by these celebrities holding their garments. They were masked and required to wear them at all times. Uh, AOC posed maskless as she arrived, but attendees uh, had to be vaccinated and those who served them had to wear masks All the time. A self described socialist, Ocasio Cortez is one of the most prominent progressive voices in support of the president's $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package. She's repeatedly called for increased taxes on the wealthiest Americans to pay for progressive policy initiatives, such as climate friendly infrastructure and expanded access to free health care. A little bit later, we'll talk about the tax hike that the Democrats are uh, going to impose if they're successful with that reconciliation package. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, COVID nineteen vaccine boosters are unnecessary for most. That's according to FDA advisors. Uh, they're reportedly resigning over the issue. Well, Tropical Storm Nicholas has been downgraded to a well it was a hurricane for a while then downgraded to a tropical storm as it made landfall in texas facebook responded to the bombshell report that they do more than play favorites and your data could be exposed if you went to a major pharmacy's covid testing site adapt or else downtown businesses are learning to cope with the new reality As it keeps changing. And Democrat Bowman doesn't rule out killing the infrastructure bill if Senator Manchin doesn't give his okay. Well, SpaceX plans to make history with an all civilian crew mission, the Inspiration 4. Well, a new study finds that half of the COVID-19 patients admitted to hospitals have few symptoms. I guess that's good news. The big indicator of COVID trouble may not be much of an indicator at all. From the story, the study found that from March of 2020 through early January 2021, before vaccination was widespread and before the Delta variant had arrived, the proportion of patients with mild to asymptomatic disease was 36 percent. From mid-January through the end of June 2021, however, that number rose to 48 percent. In other words, the study suggests that roughly half of all the hospitalized patients showing up on COVID data dashboards in 2021 May have been admitted for another reason entirely or had only a mild presentation of the disease. In fact, if they had gone in for something else and were treated for something else but diagnosed with COVID, they were put on that list. Well, the Biden administration is acting clueless on the Taliban's view of women, says McCarthy. From the story, the Taliban are as literalist and unevolved as it gets. So the notion of women holding government positions is anathema to them. But that's not merely because these are government positions. It's mainly because they are outside the home positions. Before you'd even get to question the governance, you'd confront the Taliban's opposition to women being outside the home without the supervision of a male relative. To the perceived impropriety of women interacting with men to whom they are neither married nor related and to the perceived intellectual inferiority of women that results, for example, in their testimony being valued at half that of man's rooted in an ancient uh, hadith, the uh, provenance of which is questioned by reformist Islamic scholars and authentically moderate Muslim modernizers. Now, interestingly enough, I heard a report earlier today suggesting that the Taliban uh, is willing to allow some women to attend school if it is segregated from men and to hold certain positions. Now, that's unconfirmed, and we don't know in what context it was said uh, and if it was tethered to some sort of benefit, but one would hope that uh, that would be true and certainly would be out of character. Well, the president consulted with unions before announcing his vaccine mandate, and the teachers' union, which resisted, has now caved. Fauci is all excited about the mandates, and Democrats are caught putting masks on for the cameras over the weekend, but then removing them. Well, a poll says three-quarters of Americans are very or somewhat angry at how things are going. My guess is it extends beyond what's happening in Washington, including 70% of independents and 67% of Democrats. President Biden on Tuesday's recall in California said vote for Newsom or Trump will be governor. I'm guessing he didn't mean that literally he recognized anyway. Well, President Biden made that his central argument to the California voters who will make the decision today from the Wall Street Journal. If the polls going into Tuesday's recall election in California hold up, Gavin Newsom will keep his job as governor. But if he does, no one should ever again take seriously complaints about white privilege, because if white privilege is a thing, Mr. Newsom is drenched in it. Mr. Newsom's father was a well-connected state judge who once managed one of the uh, uh, trusts for the family of oil magnate J. Paul Getty. As for his son, the Los Angeles Times says uh, that a coterie of um, San Francisco's wealthiest families uh, has backed him at uh, every step of his rise. This privilege is reflected in the seventy million dollars Mr. Newsom raves to fight the recall, more than five times the thirteen million raised by his leading challenger, Republican Larry Elder, whose race became a major issue in his challenge. Well, Democrat groups are fired up, um, or rather have fired up an ad campaign defending the president's uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan using images of vets to push the idea that Biden actually stood by them. Well, Florida's governor has threatened fines for governmental departments that force vaccinations from that story. He made clear today that his defense of the unvaccinated isn't limited to protecting them from vaccine passport requirements. They also won't have to get immunization immunized rather uh, if they work for a state or local agency in Florida. He assured them. Well, comedian Jim Breyer, I'm sure that's not the right. Pronunciation. I wasn't a fan. I'd seen him a couple of times. Anyway, he canceled his shows at venues requiring COVID vaccination. The former Saturday Night Live alum said he canceled multiple venues due to the segregation of them forcing people to show up with vaccinations. I know I'm going to sacrifice a lot of money, but I'm not going to be enslaved to the system or to money. Well, a college soccer player is suing to protect women's sports in West Virginia. From that story, Alliance Defending Freedom Attorneys, representing a West Virginia State University female athlete, filed a motion on Friday that asks a federal district court to allow her to intervene to defend the state's Save Women's Sports Act, HB 3293. The law is currently under challenge in a lawsuit that would undermine women's sports by allowing males who identify as female to compete with females in girls' and women's Sports. Well, evidence does not show the need for widespread use of booster vaccinations. Tension over covid boosters rises as FDA regulators quit and publicly blast the president's plan. Tony Blinken testified before the House on the botched Afghanistan withdrawal, admitting that thousands of lawful U.S. residents are left in Afghanistan. House Democrats are proposing one of the largest tax increases ever to pay for the president's $3.5 trillion socialist spending bill, and the proposals amount to a $2 trillion tax hike. You can read more and specifics if we don't get to it today and the Washington Examiner. Uh, Circling the wagons, Twitter did not violate election laws by throttling a Hunter Biden uh, story. Biden's F.E.C. has found. Meanwhile, the New York Times quietly deleted the claim that Hunter Biden's laptop story was unsubstantiated. Nothing to see here. A confused Biden claimed his uh, first job offer came from an Idaho lumber company. But apparently it's news to the lumber company. Now, Biden is quite senior, so it's possible that the people who offered him his first job are no longer there. But. Anyway, they had no recollection. The Department of Homeland Security chief of staff has resigned amid the ongoing migrant crisis, and Apple released a security update after researchers uncovered a new exploit. Fencing will be reinstalled ahead of the Justice for J6 rally. Uh, The Washington Post has more on that, but they're looking for those um, who have been imprisoned since January 6th to be treated uh, fairly, in quotes, we're shocked a transgender read biological male fighter who served in the American Special Forces of the Army Special Forces pulverized his first female opponent in his MMA debut. That seems pretty fair and balanced, does it not? Evangelical Lutheran Church has installed the first transgender, read, female bishop. Well, Team Newsom says there's no scenario where he loses the recall election today, and it's now almost impossible to get uh, arrested for drugs in Washington state. The Daily Wire has more on that. Skyrocketing natural gas prices have created a new opportunity for nuclear energy. And in a tongue-in-cheek satire, the Babylon Bee reports, a woman attending an ultra-exclusive gala for the elite... In an expensive designer dress, lectures the nation on inequality. Well, on this day in history, 1812, Napoleon Bonaparte's troops enter Moscow following the Battle of Borodino to find the Russian city largely abandoned and parts set ablaze. 1814, Francis Scott Key is inspired to write the poem Defense of Fort McHenry, later the Star-Spangled Banner, after witnessing the American flag flying over the Maryland Fort following a night of British naval bombardment during the War of 1812. 1901, President William McKinley dies in Buffalo, New York, of gunshot wounds inflicted by an assassin. Vice President Theodore Roosevelt succeeds him. 1954, the Soviet Union detonates a 40-kiloton uh, atomic test weapon. 1963, on this day in history, Marianne Fisher of Aberdeen, South Dakota, gives birth to four girls and a boy, the first known surviving quintuplets in the United States. Many have followed since 1982. Prince Grace of Monaco, formerly actress Grace Kelly, dies at age 52 of injuries from a car crash the day before. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, President Trump confirms that Hamza bin Laden, the son of former Al Qaeda leader and 9-11 mastermind Osama bin Laden, was killed in a United States counter-terrorist. Terrorism operation in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. Well, two days after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, President Donald Trump's top military advisor, Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley, single-handedly took secret action to limit Trump from potentially uh, potentially ordering a dangerous military strike or launching nuclear weapons, according to. Peril, a new book by legendary journalist Bob Woodward and veteran Washington Post reporter Robert Costa. Woodward and Costa write that Millie, deeply shaken by the assault, was certain that Trump had gone into a serious mental decline in the aftermath of the election, with Trump now all but manic, screaming at officials and constructing his own alternative reality about endless election conspiracies, end quote. Millie worried that Trump could go rogue. The authors wrote, You never know what a president's trigger point is, Milley told his senior staff, according to the book. Well, in response, um, Milley took extraordinary action, called a secret meeting in the Pentagon office, uh, to review the process for military action, including launching nuclear weapons. Speaking to senior military officials in charge of the military command center, the Pentagon's war room, he instructed them not to take orders from anyone, including the president, unless he was involved. No matter what you are told, you do not, um, uh, you do the procedure you do the process and i'm part of that procedure milley told officials uh, according to the book he then went around the room looked each officer in the eye and asked them to verbally confirm they understood the book is set to be released next month there are disclosures about the vice president and other uh, elements in it as well did they disclose the sources not yet known but we'll know better next week you're listening to the georgine rice show we'll be back in a moment
1: you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 36 minutes after five o'clock. Actually, I think my clock in here is a little fast, so it's probably closer to 34 minutes. Anyway, you're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We were talking just before the break about uh, the book that's coming out next week titled Peril. Uh, in addition to um, disclosures from Uh, Mr. Milley, there's also uh, some discussion about Trump and his relationship with his vice president, Pence. Um, Trump apparently said, and this is according to the book, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Well, peril describes the tense encounter in the Oval Office on the 5th of January when the president pressured Pence to overturn the results of the election. And while the showdown went on inside, the two men could hear um, supporters cheering and chanting outside near Pennsylvania Avenue, if these people say you had the power wouldn 't you want to Trump asked i wouldn 't want anyone to have that authority, but wouldn 't you almost uh, wouldn 't it be almost cool to have that power? Trump asked, according to Woodward and costa now we don 't know how they know this, but this is in the book. No Pence said he went on. I've done everything I could and then some to find a way around this. It's simply not possible. When Pence uh, didn't budge, Trump turned on him. No, 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 Trump shouted, according to the authors. You don't understand, Mike. You can do this. I don't want to be your friend anymore if you don't do this. And we know the rest of that story. Well, the previous book on Trump written by Woodward was called Rage but Peril, uh, is filled with uh, expletive-laced shouting matches. It takes the rage up a notch, according to reviewers. Top officials told the authors that uh, Trump's outburst reminded them of full metal jacket at times and Dr. Strange Glove. Um, at others. In June of 2020, after Black Lives Matter protests near the White House, he led into then-Defense Secretary Mark Esper, who had just um, announced at a news conference that he opposed invoking the Insurrection Act in response to the protests. You took away my authority, Trump screamed at Esper in the Oval Office. You're not the president. I'm the expletive president. Well, it goes on from there. How they get uh, word-for-word accounts of what happened is unclear. We don't know if Um, They have um, eyewitness accounts, if they have um, recordings or or what. But this is what's in the book, at least in part, uh, that's out. uh, That's due out tomorrow. Well, House Democrats on Monday unveiled a proposal to raise taxes on the top sliver of U.S. households, part of a sweeping plan to overhaul the nation's tax code in order to fund the president's ambitious three point five trillion dollar family and climate plan. Well, under the plan released by the House Ways and Means Committee, the top individual income rate would climb to thirty nine point six percent for the wealthiest individuals and families. The proposal rolls back a key part of the twenty seventeen tax overhaul that was passed by the Republicans, which lowered the top individual income uh, rate to thirty seven percent. So from thirty seven to thirty nine point six percent, the new rate would uh, apply to single individuals with taxable income of more than four hundred thousand dollars, according to a copy of the legislative outline it would also apply to married individuals filing jointly whose taxable income tops $450,000 to heads of households with incomes topping 425,000 to married individuals filing separate returns over 225,000 and to estates and trusts uh, over $12,500 Still, the proposed brackets um, contradict the, pre- the president's campaign promise that no one earning less than $400,000 would pay higher taxes if he were elected. For instance, under those proposed brackets, a hypothetical couple that earns $450,000 combined each year would be required to pay the higher taxes, even if the spouse is individual, uh, individually made Less than $400,000. Now, this would apply if a couple filed jointly. Anybody making more than $400,000 will see a small to a significant tax increase. Biden told uh, ABC News earlier this year if you can make less than $400,000, you won't see one single penny in additional federal tax. Well, assuming the proposal becomes law, and that's um, still a question, uh, which hinges on a deeply divided Congress, not just Republicans and Democrats, but Democrats uh, questioning some elements of the Democrat uh, law or proposed law, the new tax rate would uh, start to apply during the 2022 tax year. It would generate an estimated $170 billion over the next decade, according to an estimate from the Joint Committee on Taxation. Now, Even if Democrats fail to raise the top tax rate as part of their massive spending package, which they plan to pass uh, along party line votes using the procedural tool known as Budget Reconciliation, it will still revert to 39.6% in 2026. And that's because although the 2017 tax law temporarily lowered the individual rate, it's poised to sunset in 5 years. Well the top rate is currently paid by single individuals earning more than 518,000 and married individuals uh, who earn more than 622,000 and that's filing jointly. Well the Ways and Means Committee's uh, provisional proposal also includes a 3% surcharge on individual income above $5 million and increases the top tax rate for capital gains, the proceeds from selling an asset to 25%, that's up from 20%. Well, separately, the House Democrats announced a bevy of other tax hikes to fund their uh, uh, their spending package, including raising the corporate tax rate to twenty six point five percent for businesses earning more than five million dollars in income. The corporate rate would uh, be lowered to 18 percent for small businesses earning less than four hundred thousand dollars. All other businesses would continue to pay the current twenty one percent. More details on that should be made available at some point in the not too distant future this would be one of the largest tax increases uh, ever to uh, pay for this 3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation package well two leading vaccine regulators who had previously announced their resignations from the food and drug administration have now come out against the Biden administration's plan to offer covid-19 booster shots now the fda's initial um, opposition had to do with the fact that they had not yet determined whether or not booster shots were in um, the public's best interest. When well, in a viewpoint article published in the Lancet on Monday, Marion Grubber, an outgoing director of the FDA's Office of Vaccine Research and Review, and Phil Krauss, the outgoing deputy director of, um, uh, of the same organization argued against the current booster plans. They wrote currently available evidence does not show the need for widespread use of booster vaccinations. The pair along with colleagues conclude in the article, even if there are benefits from boosters, the shots still carry risks and any benefits will not outweigh the benefits of providing initial protection to the unvaccinated. They write. So it says that there are, um, um, there's a downside uh, in the, the booster shot. Well, Grubber and Krauss, they penned the uh, Lancet article with 16 international colleagues, including several high-ranking experts at the World Health Organization. Krauss is listed as the first author of the article and a corresponding uh, author as well. Well, the pair's public opposition to boosters comes just weeks after they announce their resignations from the FDA. Their departures are set for the 31st of October and November, respectively. There is reportedly anger and frustration with the FDA in that the administration made announcements that's not based on science, which we are all told is the guiding principle in decisions being made and imposed on the public. Well, members of Congress introduced bipartisan legislation last week to put a freeze on federal funding for the sort of gain of function research that some claim is responsible for the covid-19 pandemic. The bill titled the Pausing Enhanced Pandemic Pathogen Research Act. Wow. Was introduced by representatives Mike Gallagher, Buddy Carter and Henry Kruller. Two Republicans and a Democrat and seeks to halt the funding for the controversial research for five years, according to the press release. Gain of function research seeks to find new ways to fight diseases by rendering pathogens more infectious and lethal. Well, the legislation follows a recent report from The Intercept indicating the United States funded gain of function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, from which some believe the SARS-CoV-2 virus leaked. Dr. Anthony Fauci has faced renewed scrutiny from lawmakers regarding the involvement of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in providing funds to EcoHealth Alliance, which funded that coronavirus research at the Wuhan lab. This is something we never should have allowed without proper oversight and safety protocols, said one of the lawmakers. We knew the dangers of -of gain-of-function research, but the National Institutes of Health and Dr. Fauci continued to fund it in American and overseas. Well, Nicholas, the uh, once uh, hurricane has now been downgraded to a tropical storm. It made landfall in Texas as a Category 1 hurricane early uh, in the day is expected to bring heavy rain and did and flooding along the Texas, Louisiana Gulf Coast this week. The storm made landfall at about 1230 a.m. Central Daylight Time on the eastern part of the Um, peninsula about 10 miles west southwest of sergeant beach in texas maximum sustained winds were 75 miles per hour with higher gusts at landfall according to the national hurricane center in other news a senior staffer at a texas pro-life organization has been bombarded with threats after planned parenthood divulged their personal information in legal filings posted online The Texas right to life employees home address was circulated widely online after Planned Parenthood listed it on a recent lawsuit filed against the pro-life group. A link to the lawsuit, which includes the staffer's name and home address was initially included in a September 2nd press release announcing the legal action, but the link was eventually taken down sometime after September 9th, after the pro-life group's attorneys raised the issue in court. Meanwhile, the, um, Uh, dozens of protesters marched on Justice Kavanaugh's home in response to the Texas abortion law ruling as well. Pro-abortion activists marched on the uh, home of The justice on Monday in response to his vote to uphold a Texas law restricting abortion, it's not quite accurate to put it that way. But in videos posted online by The Daily Caller, Mary Margaret uh the approach said that protesters can be seen gathering at a park in Chevy Chase, Maryland, before walking over to Kavanaugh's residence, uh, which appeared to be unoccupied at the time. At one point, protesters antagonized several police officers who were stationed at the Kavanaugh home. The protest was organized by an organization, Shut Down DC. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a break, but we'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the name Joe Kennedy might be familiar to you. He's a former high school football coach, and he's now asking the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene after a very long legal battle over his decision to pray after games. Now, when I say pray after games, this is football games. He's a football coach. He would uh, kneel by himself and utter a word of prayer that wasn't heard by anyone. Well, earlier this year, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the uh, Bremerton School District in Washington state lawfully fired Coach Kennedy when he defied their order not to pray. Well, First Liberty Institute, it's a religious liberty law firm that's representing Coach Kennedy, has argued that the school district infringed on his constitutional rights. He didn't lead um, his uh, students into prayer. He didn't encourage and invite others to pray with him. He just simply knelt and quietly prayed to himself Well, rather didn't pray aloud. He was praying to uh, to God. Well, the, uh, Kelly Shackelford, who's the president and CEO and chief counsel for First Liberty, said no American should be forced to choose between their faith. And their job, the job they love. Well, the Ninth Circuit's opinion threatens the rights of millions of Americans who simply want to be able to freely exercise their faith without fear of losing their job. We hope the Supreme Court will right this wrong and restore Coach Kennedy to the football field where he belongs, end quote. Well, Americans united for separation of church and state praised the appeals court decision, as of course they would in the spring, stating that the it protected students' religious freedom. I'm not sure how depriving the coach of his right to pray privately although visible to others, is protecting students' religious freedom. They said public schools must provide an inclusive and welcoming environment for all students, regardless of their religious beliefs. Uh, That is a quote from the uh, president and legal uh, director of the organization, Richard Katsky back in March. Well, that includes ensuring that student athletes don't feel compelled to pray or participate in religious activities to secure their place on the team. Americans United ag- argued and the courts agreed that the Bremerton School District did the right thing. It protected the religious freedom of all students and their families. Americans United uh, was proud to support the district's Efforts. While well, the Supreme Court declined in 2019 to hear Coach Kennedy's appeal after the Ninth Circuit rejected his case, as part of the Supreme Court's initial decision for conservative justices, Thomas Alito uh, uh, and Kavanaugh, as, along with uh, Gorsuch, indicated Kennedy's case could succeed after future uh, or further litigation. Well, Alito wrote that he... Uh, uh, concurred with the decision to reject Kennedy's case because denial of, um, let me get the right word, certiorari, or something very like that, does not signify that the court necessarily agrees with the decision. So it's possible the Supreme Court now might hear the case. Citing important unresolved factual questions, he said it would be difficult to adequately address Kennedy's free speech claim. <clears throat> Yet and still, he argued, that the Ninth Circuit's understanding of the free speech rights of public school teachers is troubling and may justify review in the future. Well, fast forward to the future. That's now. Well, in order to hear the case, the Supreme Court typically just needs four justices to grant um, certiori. OK, that's the best I can do. Since the uh, 2019 decision, the court has uh, added another conservative justice in Amy Coney Barrett, which doesn't tell us one way or the other how she might decide, but... Again, a new uh, sitting justice uh, may decide differently than the uh, justice she replaced. Well, the American Bible Society today released the sixth chapter of their 11th annual State of the Bible report. It highlights cultural trends across the United States regarding spirituality and scripture engagement. I assume that scripture engagement means people take God's word seriously. They're studying the Bible. They're meditating on it and applying it. Well, today's release suggests that people who are rooted in the Bible tend to epitomize neighborliness better than others. The first six chapters are currently available to download at stateofthebible.org. So if you're interested in the previous chapters, you can find them there, stateofthebible.org. Uh, Says John uh, Forquhar Plake, who's a PhD and director of ministry intelligence uh, for American Bible Society. Throughout history, followers of Jesus have gone to great lengths to serve others, even when it comes at great personal cost. Epidemics, wars, poverty, hardship, disasters, and other Dramatic world events have all been occasions for Christians to show God's love in tangible ways. In an age known for polarization and division, we must serve each other and answer the biblical call to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our differences can be largely overcome with the truth found in the scriptures, and we can afford to display selfless, practical love to others because Christ first loved us, end quote. Well, the findings come from a survey conducted by the American Bible Society back in January of this year, in which data was gathered from about 3,300 online interviews with American adults in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. Well, for this year's report, the American Bible Society released nine chapters throughout the year. The sixth chapter, Good Neighbors reveals that even when accounting for all other variables, the more deeply people engage with the Bible, the more respectful they are of others. Some of the key findings in that study, those who practice their faith are significantly different from those who identify with a particular faith orientation. So if you take it seriously, it makes a difference. Now, those who practice their Christian faith and are rooted in Scripture are more likely to exhibit good neighboring behavior. These neighboring behaviors include volunteering in the community, helping a stranger, and donating money to charity. There are generational differences in neighboring as younger adults are more likely to engage in neighboring behaviors than older adults. Younger adults are more likely to give of their time, while elders are more likely to donate money to charity. Included in the concept of good neighboring is civility. The state of the Bible measured civility by asking about attitudes of respect for a collection of occupational groups. There are um, uh, fascinating findings on how respect differs among occupational groups and on the basis of scripture engagement, race, ethnicity, and age. And again, all of the details can be found in this uh, report. Pro-social behaviors, which are behaviors done voluntarily for the benefit of others without the uh, expectation of reciprocation or personal benefit are linked to an increased sense of meaning and purpose in life. And Bible users agree that the Bible is a basis for good neighboring and leads them to engage in several pro behaviors. Practicing Christians are consistently more likely than non-practicing Christians to see the importance of civic engagement and engage in self-care. And those who score highest in scripture engagement are most likely to agree the Bible leads them to engage in welcoming immigrants into the community, befriending people of other races, befriending people of other religions, caring for those who are in prison, and so on. And while age and ethnicity relate to attitudes toward neighbors and society in general, the strongest factor in neighboring behaviors seems to be the practicing a biblical-based faith. Well, Between October and December of um, this year, American Bible Society will release three new chapters from the State of the Bible survey Study, including reports on the views and use of Scripture among church traditions and denominations, and the relationship between the Bible, money, and generosity. Again, state of the state of the Bible rather org. You can find all of the previous chapters and the chapter just released. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.